Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-saving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... The dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Wang, for reading that so beautifully. Let's pray as we consider that scripture together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us to number our days aright, 
that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And as we look ahead to the resurrection of the dead, so you would turn our hearts, our minds, our lives to that labor in you which is not in vain, but which will stand the test of eternity. And so lead us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into this world. At Prince Philip's funeral yesterday, millions of people heard that brief exchange between the Lord Jesus and the grieving Martha. We didn't hear the wider context of that exchange. It took place just after the funeral of Martha's brother Lazarus, and it took place just before Jesus' greatest miracle, when he would call Lazarus out of his grave. And it was perhaps Jesus' greatest miracle promise. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. But what does it mean? That's the question Paul begins or continues to answer uh, in this last section of 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that we've been looking at over the last couple of Sundays. Three points that I want to draw out of this passage for you this morning, that uh, the resurrection is a reasonable and rational hope. Second, that it is a glorious hope. And thirdly, that it is a certain hope for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And on that foundation of a reasonable, glorious and certain hope, we may build our lives, labor confidently in the Lord, knowing that all we do in Christ's name is never in vain, but one day will be seen for what it is on the day of judgment. So first, the resurrection is a rational hope, verses 35 to 41. And do keep the Bible open. Uh, if you've got a device or a, an actual book, uh, it doesn't really matter what version, but do come with me to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and from verse 35. You see, people have always been skeptical about the resurrection. They were when Paul was preaching. Remember we looked at a few weeks ago in Athens, the wise ones of the city scoffed. Nothing could be more foolish to the Greek philosophers than the idea of hope in the resurrection of the dead. And here still the skeptic is in mind in the question of verse 35. How are the dead raised? You might imagine that question being asked. No one is going to ask that question at a royal funeral I wonder, for those who would think seriously about the words of the Lord Jesus, how many would then go on to echo that question themselves and think, well, let's find religious uh, words and who does pomp better than the Church of England at a royal funeral? But is it real? Can it really be true? Can this be my hope? When Jesus says these things and Paul says to us as he applies this to a congregation who themselves have doubts and who are surrounded by skeptics and we live in those same realities. Paul says to us this is our real and reasonable and rational hope. It is not a matter of blind faith. It certainly isn't a warm thought when we really know deep down that it's a fairy story. 
Not at all. Just as Jesus' grave was empty on the first Easter Sunday morning, so your grave will be empty one day if you put your trust in him now. Jesus means us to take his promise quite literally. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. He's about to illustrate it dramatically by calling Lazarus forth from the grave. Not a resurrection life, for Lazarus would die again, but as an extraordinary, miraculous underwriting of the promise that he makes here, where the real miracle would be on Easter Sunday, and the even greater miracle, if we can say that, in him will be on the last day when the living and the dead will rise to the judgment and the graves will empty. And then we will see the full and final fulfillment of Jesus' promise. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And Paul says to us, that though we cannot understand everything about the resurrection and we'd be foolish to think that we could, the natural world is absolutely replete with illustrations of what will occur on that day. And so he says, how foolish to uh, ask such skeptical questions. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. In other words, every landscape teaches us about the resurrection. We've had fun, haven't we, working out where Nathan's been standing uh, and and the wonderful landscapes all around Hartford doing his uh, all-age teaching over the last uh, few months. But it's been so good that they've been outdoors because every backdrop has been underlining the rationality of the resurrection. Look at an acorn and then 20 years later uh, come back and look at the oak tree that grew out of it. The acorn is not the oak tree. The oak tree is not the acorn. And yet they are the same. The same entity, the same being, the same life. The acorn died and from it the oak tree burst forth into life. Well, Paul says that in the same way the Christian hope of the resurrection is like that. And therefore, although extraordinary to us and beyond our present capacity to fully understand Yet we are surrounded by the works of the God who does this in every way, in every landscape, and in every living thing. So Paul says that the Christian hope of the resurrection is like this. The bodies we're in now will come to an end. We will die, and our bodies will be burnt or they will decay. When Bertrand Russell, the atheist philosopher, said, when I die, I rot, He wasn't really saying anything useful because nobody would disagree. Of course we do. It's the natural order of things. When you plant an acorn in the ground, you don't expect an enormous acorn to come back out again. The acorn dies. Our bodies are destroyed, whether they go into the ground or the cremator or even into a royal vault. They will be destroyed in the moment or over time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as we, was, we would normally say in a funeral service. Rather better, I think, than Russell put it. But to believe that that is the end of the body is as foolish as giving up on farming because everybody knows that as soon as you put in the seed in the ground, well, that's it. And that's the last you'll ever see of it. So you might as well pack up the farmhouse And leave. Because after all, there's nothing to see straight away, is there? There's just the seed in the freshly ploughed ground. 
Well, you wouldn't get very far as a farmer if you believed that. And this illustration really is wonderful because what we sow in the ground doesn't look anything like what comes out of the ground. When the seed is sown, it's not raised as a seed. Its old body is not reanimated. And the seed goes into the ground and dies. It is not raised as a spirit with no bodily form. That wouldn't be much use for the farmer either, would it? And so the skeptic, Paul says, is confounded every time he looks out the window, every time he looks on a landscape, especially in the spring as the new growth begins to pop its head out of the ground everywhere. And so Paul says our hope is quite rational. It doesn't deny death, but rather it trusts that the God who brings oak trees out of acorns is quite capable of bringing the bodies of his people sown in the ground one day to bodily resurrection. For as Paul continues in verse 38, God gives a body as he has determined. To each kind of seed he gives its own body. And then he gives a further series of illustrations to show how wonderfully capable God is of giving his creatures appropriate bodies for the habitat in which they dwell. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same. Men don't have wings. Birds don't have gills. Even stars differ from one another in splendor. And so how can we limit the way we think of God when it comes to the resurrection of the dead? This is not blind faith. This is faith that looks around at the evidence all around of the creator's infinite wisdom and creative power. How foolish to question the resurrection. See, it's no more irrational to believe Jesus' promise in him that you will live beyond death in a resurrected body than it is to believe that the seed you sow will grow into a crop, a flower, or a tree. Because we live in the world of the God who brings life from death, a God who fits every body in a way that is suitable for it perfectly and who will one day equip us with the kind of bodies we need to live in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what he comes on to in his second point, that the resurrection is a glorious hope. Here Paul spells out uh, what our resurrection bodies will be like in a series of comparisons, uh, and Nathan helpfully uh, unpacked these verses a little bit for us as well. Four comparisons between the body we have now and the body we will have in the resurrection age. Number one, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Paul is a complete realist. He knows that the body we currently have is decaying. It has a sell-by date on it. We would have all rejoiced, wouldn't we, if Prince Philip had reached 100 rather than falling asleep just two months before that extraordinary goal. But a few more months wouldn't have changed the reality for him or for any of us. We can't cheat death. And it has so many ways of reminding us of its inevitability. Sickness, disability, tiredness, weakness, and coronavirus. They're all signs of the decay, all forerunners of our inevitable call to the grave. I was struck the other day that only one of my predecessors as vicar of Hartford is still alive. All the rest... I've gone to the grave and gone to be with the Lord. So it will be one day for me. So it will be one day for all of us. 
We try to delay at the inevitable. We live in a world of incessantly advertised cosmetics and diets and fitness programs and facelifts and none of them necessarily wrong in themselves, but all a losing battle against the inevitability of decay and death. And yet Paul tells us here that far from being anxious at the thought, we have a hope for something infinitely better a body that will never wear out or fail, an imperishable, immortal body. We are going to have bodies uh, that will enjoy perennial health and vigor. There will be no physical or mental decay. We will never grow sick or old. As the voice from the throne in the book of Revelation says, of that day when the dead will be raised, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. As Paul has already said in this chapter in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Second, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. The bodies we have at the moment are dishonorable, not because they were created that way, but because we use them that way. Earlier in the service, as we always should do, and not just weekly when we gather, but daily, moment by moment, we confessed our sins to God. And the fact that we have to do that regularly and repeatedly points precisely to this point Paul is making here, that we are dishonorable, we are sinful people. And that is something which should, in a right way, trouble us. And we can't simply pretend that this trouble is not real. It was striking and sad yesterday that apart from in the Lord's Prayer, the word sin did not occur in that funeral service. It was even carefully trimmed out of the one prayer that was taken from the Book of Common Prayer's funeral service. It's no criticism of the prince to observe that yesterday's funeral service only had the appearance of being a traditional Church of England funeral. Our reformers knew that we couldn't deal with sin simply by not talking about it. And there is a certain irony that the prince will lay in the same vault as Henry VIII whose Archbishop Cranmer taught us to pray in a funeral, these were the excised words, we meekly beseech thee, O Father, to raise us from the death of sin unto the life of righteousness. And so he will. That's the glory of it. Our bodies are sown in dishonor, but will be raised in glory. And until that day comes, we acknowledge our dishonor, we confess our sins, we lay hold of his mercy, we keep praying, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That was the one mention we had in that funeral. And we long for Jesus to bring that wretched cycle to an end. We say, come, Lord Jesus, and he will. And the day is coming when verse 57 will be fully and finally true. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For our dishonorable bodies will be sown and they will be raised in glory. In this world, we will battle with sin until the end, but not so in the age of the resurrection. We shall know fully even as we are fully known. And we'll be finally transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. Number three, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
This overlaps with the idea of being perishable. Jesus will, in the words of Paul from another letter, transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious resurrection body. This pattern we have is Jesus' own resurrection body. And we know from the gospel accounts that when Jesus rose from the grave, he was transformed from what he was like before he died. His resurrected body was physical. Remember Thomas putting his hands on him. Or Jesus eating a meal with his friends. But he was different. He could pass through walls and grave clothes. He could appear and disappear. Sometimes it was obvious to his friends who he was. And sometimes it wasn't. And then 40 days later when he ascended, he simply lifted off the ground and went into the clouds. So Jesus was still Jesus. And yet there was something very different about his resurrected body. And so Paul says it will be with us. Our bodies, we can't even imagine this, will no longer be subject to the limitations of time or space or food. And the contrast Paul specifically draws is between our weakness, which increases as the age goes by, doesn't it? Compared to the power we shall have in fullness in our resurrected bodies. And then fourthly, It is so a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. This is perhaps the most important of all because it underlies all the rest. By a natural body, Paul means a body which is designed for life on earth in the realm of nature. He's picking up on his own illustration of the way God provides appropriate bodies for his creatures. In this world, we have a natural earthly body because we live in the natural world on earth. In the heavenly world to come, they will be transformed into spiritual bodies. That is, we will have a body which is appropriate for living in the spirit in the age to come. A spiritual body is not a ghostly thing with no substance, but one that is fully transformed and filled by the Holy Spirit of God. And the old order of things will have passed away, and we shall dwell in the presence of the Lord, raised to love and serve and praise him into all eternity. So four contrasts between our bodies now, the ones we're in because we've brought them to church or wherever we're sitting online, and the bodies that we will have that are coming when we put our trust in Jesus' promise. Now, perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural, then imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Suffering and death and decay will not have the last word for this resurrection that is yours and mine if we put our trust in Christ is what God has promised will be our experience in the age that is to come. And so thirdly, And finally, a rational hope, a glorious hope, a certain hope for those who trust in Jesus. How can we be sure of having the sure and certain hope of the resurrection for ourselves? Well, from the second half of verse 44, Paul builds a simple sequence. If there is a natural body, and there is because those are the ones we've got, then there is also a spiritual body. Well, we want to say yes, Paul, but how do we know? Well, two things convinced him, and two things must convince us as well. The Old Testament scripture and the coming 
of the Lord Jesus. The first chapters of the Bible tell us about our origins in Adam, the original man. Verse 45, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. God created us with natural bodies fit for living on earth. And because we are all descended from that first Adam, we too are living beings. It's a glorious thing to be descended from Adam because it means we're alive. And yet, it also means we will die. Earlier in this chapter, Paul said, death came through a man. In Adam, all die. We who inherit life from Adam also inherit the curse of death, for he sinned and we sinned in him, and we sin like him as well. And so death comes to us as our inheritance from Adam. As in Adam, all die. We are by nature his children. But Paul says, though that is the bad news, there is now good news. That's why Jesus has come. There is another Adam, the last Adam, he calls him. In other words, Jesus Christ. And this Adam has become a life-giving spirit. So we inherit from Adam our life that ends in death. But when we look to Jesus, we find not simply an example uh, or one from whose family we are descended, but rather we find the God who comes into his fallen world to breathe life eternal resurrection life back into it. He is a life-giving spirit. As Paul puts it at the start of his letter to the Romans, this last Adam, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the empty tomb of Jesus is not just the first example, it is the very gateway to life for us. So that as we put our trust in Jesus, his death for our sins, and his rising to glory to reign, so in him and his cross and empty tomb, we find the certain hope of life in all its fullness. So how do we know that just as we now have natural bodies, so we shall one day have spiritual bodies? Because Jesus has risen on the first Easter morning. The first Adam left us with the inheritance of being living beings who are yet powerless in the face of death. The last Adam has the power we need uniquely and fully and available to every one of us today to give us eternal life in bodies which, like his, will be gloriously transformed, fitted for an eternity in the presence of our living And loving God. You see, the reason that we have a sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life is because Jesus has died and risen for us. That picture of the seed dying and rising has already been seen in Jesus. He really died on the cross for your sins and for mine. We don't not talk about sin, we confess it and we trust that He's paid the price in full for it. And he really bodily rose from the grave. He laid down his life and he took it up again. And as we are confident of that, so we will be confident of our own future in him. For he stands ahead of us, showing us in himself the reality of resurrection, which he promises to all who will follow him. And we have to see here and everywhere in the scriptures that this is a promise that we must believe. 
So verse 48, as was the earthly man, so were those who were of the earth. And as is the man from, or better, of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. A resurrection to life everlasting does not come automatically to every man and woman. It is only those, Paul says, who are of heaven who have the hope of resurrection, the certain hope of resurrection in the face of death. In other words, it is those like Martha who say yes to Jesus who have this certain hope. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into this world. Or as Paul says elsewhere, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no equivocation or uncertainty about that. Do you believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? Have you put your faith in him? Have you said yes to him as Martha did? Then you will rise again. There is no doubt about that because God's word is certain. That's why to make one final observation, it was sad to see the reverse of the reformers' insight in that service yesterday. Twice we were praying or encouraged to pray for Philip that he might have light perpetual shining upon him. The practice of praying for the dead Uh, was decisively removed at the Reformation. Why? Because they grasped this biblical insight that if we've trusted in Jesus, then there is no doubt that once we have departed this life, we have gone to be with the Lord, and we will share in the resurrection to life everlasting. And if one has not trusted in Christ in this life, there is no point in praying for them once they're dead, because our chance is here and our choice is now. And if they have trusted, well, then our prayers will do them no good because they're already there. So we do not pray for the dead. The only reason to pray for the dead is because there is some uncertainty, perhaps, about where the dead have gone. Well, the gospel eradicates the uncertainty and leaves the choice before us. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord Jesus. Will you join Martha and Philip and say, yes. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into this world. We don't have time to look at the remaining verses in detail, but notice that that certain hope we have is a future one. Verse 52, the trumpet has not yet sounded, the dead have not yet been raised. When that day comes, how great will be the rejoicing, for death will have been swallowed up into victory. And finally, we will be able to mock death Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For in that day there will be no more sin. So God's law will no longer be able to convict and condemn us. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, hold firmly to the gospel of God. Our hope is a rational one, not a mystical thing. It's about trusting the God who brings oak trees from acorns and who will bring us from the grave to everlasting life. It's a hope that is glorious and sustaining because when we know the reality of our mortal, dishonorable, weak, natural bodies, we know what is coming and we know how glorious it will be. And it is a certain hope. God's word does not lie and the promise is plain to us. Jesus' own resurrection is the glorious demonstration and means of our own. And so as we lay hold of this hope, 
We discover its present power to energize our lives in Christ's service until that day comes. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you make that promise to us. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Father, some of us perhaps have never really trusted those words of your son. Others of us say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Some of us may wonder if you could really love us and save us. Please would you bring us, like Martha, to a confident faith that says yes to Jesus and receives him as Lord and trusts him as Savior and looks forward with absolute certainty to the day when he will welcome us home. In his name we pray. Amen.